being here. Uh, Screw Tape Letters, I, I'm sure you saw it, starts next week. I think one of the things that I'm kind of sad about is I'm going to be sad uh, to not see Jacob's fingers every uh, week, so I just have to go look at him in person. Uh, just to remind you, that's our new series. If, if you're thinking, what the heck is that graphic and weird thing? Well, it's starting uh, next week. It's a new uh, series based on the book CS, uh, by C.S. Lewis called The Screw Tape Letters, and I think it's going to be really fun. It's going to be a big shift uh, for us um, topically uh, in here. We've been talking a lot about Jesus, as you probably know. Uh, the Screw Tape Letters is going to be a, a bit of a different uh, turn because it's going to be talking kind of about um, things that can come and take us out as Christians. But I think it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you guys would uh, consider coming and maybe even bringing a friend uh, or two. Or two. Starts uh, next week. So welcome. We're so glad you guys are here. Um, this is Outlet. If you are here for the first time, I know there's always new, new people. Um, we just want to say that uh, we hope, you know, the, the journey of, let me say it like this, the journey of life is really long, and uh, everyone's journey is really unique, and different people are in different places, and I just hope as uh, we continue to figure out what the church means to us, and as the church continues to evolve, and uh, society continues to change, it's just really super duper important to me that what this place is, is a safe harbor for people no matter, no matter where they're at in their journey. So we hope you consider that uh, this would be a place like that for you, no matter where you're at. We're just super glad that you're here, and we hope you're uh, relaxed and encouraged uh, by your time here. So thanks for being here. We are in a series. It's the final week, as you probably know. It's uh, the final week of a series called The God Who Bleeds. And so uh, we're going to circle back a little bit uh, to where we kind of started at the beginning of the series. But uh, the idea of the series, The God Who Bleeds, is we're attempting to turn our attention to the mystery of Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, why? And so this is a, something I put up at the beginning of the series. I'm going to put it up again. Disguised under the ugliness of pain and death, the bleeding Jesus is paradoxically the clearest picture we have of who God is. First uh, Corinthians 2, verse 2, Paul says this, For I have resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's an amazing statement. My, my New Year's resolution, says Paul, is this. I hope to know absolutely nothing except Jesus Christ uh, and him crucified. And Jesus was an amazing man. Uh, not only was he spat upon, not only was he beat up, not only was he tortured, not uh, only was he made to bleed, but he was killed. In fact, he was brutally murdered as a criminal, uh, even though he was innocent. At the beginning of the series, I put this portrait up of, of Jesus. This is uh, by a guy by the name of uh, Matthias Grunewald. I think it's the right amount of graphic because it shows certainly some sadness there, but it's not too uh, over the top. But uh, just if you would, I think, look, and maybe look at that. And it's such an interesting place uh, to be as, as a, a person who would look at uh, that and, and to ask yourself this question, well, who is that tortured, dying man who's nailed to the cross? Well, a Christian would make this outlandish statement. They would look at that tortured, dying man, and they would say this, this is God. And if you don't find that at all strange, um, then you've become far too familiar with the crucifixion because it's such an unusual, shocking thing uh, to see this man who's suffering uh, and bleeding and dying and look at him and we would say that that is uh, God. And so the place, the place that, um, the cross is the place where Jesus, of course, was killed. And amazingly, it is also not only that, it's the center of the Christian faith that this event right here, this is what makes us 
us as followers of Jesus. So the cross is the place where he was killed. And so if we were ever to, if you, if you were ever to be asked this question, well, where is the center of the Christian faith? Well, you would, you would uh, point to the cross and you'd say right there. And maybe if you were ever uh, asked, well, where are your sins forgiven and where is the world made right? Well, you would point to the cross and you would say, well, it's right there. And this, this last one, this is the one that I think sometimes we miss. If you were to ever be asked the question, well, what is God like? Well, you would, you would point to the cross, that man dying on the cross, and you would say, uh, right there. So my title tonight is this, my last title in the God uh, Who Bleeds. My title is this, Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus is what God has to say. I've got three verses for you, and then we're going to go through them. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul says this, The glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says this, He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And lastly, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 through 3 uh, the author says this, Well, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is, if you were to, to think about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so the Apostle Paul and a lot of the other authors of the New Testament uh, say, say this statement. It's kind of an interesting one. They say this, Jesus is the image of God. So Jesus, another way to say that would be this, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Uh, or maybe even like this, God's ultimate act of self-expression is Jesus. Or maybe you could even say it like this, the only perfect picture that we have of God and who God is, is Jesus. So Jesus is what God has to say. Another way you could maybe say this is like this. I really think it's kind of sticky. I've I heard a pastor say it like this one time. Jesus is perfect theology. Jesus is perfect theology. And so theology, you might be thinking, oh, God, theology, oh, this is so horrible, theology. Theology is just how you understand God. So anyone who has any conversation about God ever, if you're at all interested in him being involved in your life in any capacity, well, theology should be something that is at least slightly interesting to you because theology is how you understand God. What is he like? What is he not like? That's all uh, theology. And so in our quest, because Jesus is perfect theology, in our quest to understand God, we must always return back to Jesus because Jesus is the only perfect way to understand who God is. Perfect theology is not a system. Perfect theology is a person. And so like the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, these were all, this is the inspired telling, this inspired beautiful telling of our growing understanding of who God is and has always been. But we didn't always understand God. Just be, be clear on that. Before Jesus, the people who had the clearest picture of who God was, they had a name and they were called the Pharisees. And turns out that they were quite possibly the wrongest out of all of us. And so uh, we just, just understand this. We didn't understand who God was until we met Jesus. But now, because of Jesus, who is perfect theology, finally, at long last, we're able to know what God has really uh, been like. 
because Jesus, now we know uh, who he's like. And that doesn't mean that all, imper- all uh, interpretations uh, of Jesus are perfect. In fact, you'd say it like this, none of them are. There's no, there's no perfect interpretation uh, of Jesus. And so perfect theology is not found. Here's a few examples of where some people think perfect theology might be found. Perfect theology is not found in the writings of St. Augustine. It's the, uh, it's the guy who most of our Catholic and Protestant theology has come from. It's really good, but it's not perfect theology. And perfect theology is not found in Thomas Aquinas' uh, Summa Theologica. Some people think it's perfect theology. It's good theology, but it's not perfect theology. Perfect theology is not found in John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. It's decent theology, but it's not perfect theology. Perfect theology is not even found in Karl Barth's 13-volume Church Dogmatics. It's considered to probably be the most influential theological work of the 20th century. It's pretty good theology, but it's not perfect theology. In fact, I would even say this. Uh, you can't even find perfect theology in N.T. Wright's 5,000-page New Testament scholarship. It's great theology. I own it, and I read it, and I preach from it every time I preach. And it's really, really good, and I really, really like it. It's good theology, but it's not perfect theology. Uh, perfect theology is not found in a book. Perfect theology is not found in a theory or a system. Perfect theology is only found in, the, in a life. It's the life of Jesus Christ. And so we must always return to the life of Jesus if we are to understand God. So just, I, I know I'm like beating, beating that into the ground, but just understand this. The truest picture of who God really is, is ultimately with Jesus. And every, every idea that you think about God that doesn't look like Jesus, we reject it. Because the truest picture of who God is, is found in Jesus. So those scriptures, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 through 3, we already read it. I'm going to read it real quick. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the author is saying, some people don't know uh, who, uh, or most people, you know, I guess nobody knows who the author is of Hebrews. Some people thought Paul at some point, but now people are thinking, well, maybe it's not Paul. Now they don't even know if it's a guy, it might be a girl, we don't know. But the author, who's just a nice Jewish uh, person, um, wrote Hebrews, and basically what he says this, well, years ago, years ago, God spoke in lots of different ways. Lots of different ways. He spoke through angels and prophets and songs and poems and stories and signs, and that was how God spoke. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. And you may be thinking, last days, how could it possibly be the last days? Isn't that written like 2,000 years ago? All that means is this was the last days, this is like too nerdy, but this is the last days of divine revelation. So basically all that means is this. There's nothing that's going to come after Jesus that's going to give us a clearer picture of who God is. Because it's the last days of divine revelation. So he is the ultimate. He is the clearest picture we have or will ever receive about God. That's why I'm not a Mormon. You know what I mean? Well, that and a bunch of other reasons, but some obvious ones. But, but that, because I believe that there's nothing since the life of Jesus Christ that is a more clearer picture of who God really is than the life of Jesus. And so uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we've already read these. The glory of Christ who is the image of God. And if, if you uh, see that phrase, image of God, you might be thinking, does that, does that ring a bell for anybody? Everything an image of God, that kind of sounds familiar. It's actually repeated a lot of different times in the Bible. One of the places that maybe comes to mind for you is Genesis uh, chapter 1, where uh, God says this, well, let us make man in our image. And so it, it, I think it's significant to know that human beings were created to bear the image of God. 
We all were. And we have done that, to put it mildly, we have done that imperfectly, to say the least. We haven't been right. But, but Jesus comes, and he bears the image of God perfectly. And so it's amazing, because Jesus does two things simultaneously. At, in, in one instance, he shows us exactly who God is, and he shows us exactly who we're supposed to be. Because our job that we have consistently failed at, he's the only one who does it perfectly. He's the only perfect image of God. And it's strange, because it's, but in this simultaneous way, God shows us exact, the exact nature of God and exactly how we're supposed to go about this task of being human. If you're ever curious what it means or how we're supposed to be living our lives, well, you just have to look um, at Jesus. Because again, Christ is the perfect image of God. It's another word, this word, uh, image. It's actually, I would say, more uh, accurately translated to be this word, icon. Can you say that word with me? Icon. And so uh, it's actually saying, like, Christ is the icon of God. I actually have some pictures, some Christian icons for you. Uh, some of you guys doubt, no doubt have some icons in your house. Maybe you have some crucifixions. Maybe you have some crosses. Maybe you've got, like, the classic, you know, Jesus lamb, you know, shoulders thing going on. But whatever it is, these are, these are different um, icons of the Christian faith. And uh, what it might be, uh, you know, these, these were, I'll say like this, they were produced by the church very early on. And amazingly, uh, after a little while, these produced quite the controversy, these icons of God, because uh, um, there, there were people, all, it was all ultimately leading up to the 8th century, it like became this huge battle church-wide, because people ultimately thought, man, you can't have icons like that. Those are idols. You can't have a crucifix in your house. That's an idol. You can't have a picture of Jesus. It's an idol. So, of course, they, they're drawing from the second commandment, which uh, says, make no graven images. And so there's this big epic fight, if you can picture, in the 8th century of the two sides of Christianity. Some want uh, these icons. Some think that uh, we shouldn't have them because um, we're, uh, we're making false idols by creating these. Finally, we meet, we get together. It's called the Second, Count, Second Ecumenical Council. We get together. It's a big historical landmark where we're deciding whether or not icons are allowed. And so we finally decide as, as um, a church culture that not only are icons allowed, but they're actually valuable to us, because, and they actually, they, actually, they actually help us. And the scripture that they famously use are these scriptures that we've just been reading, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Colossians 1, 15, that say this, Jesus is the icon of God. Jesus is the icon of God. So just understand this, prior to Jesus, God is very clear. He says this, he says this, don't make any images of me. Don't make any images of me. You might be thinking, well, why not? Because you get it wrong. You'll try, you'll try to make an icon, and it'll be the wrong one. Because you don't know what I look like yet. And so, so as, uh, but then he sends his son, he sends Jesus, who is the exact icon. The exact representation of who God is. And now God, now God says this, hey, there's absolutely no images to be made of me except for that one. Because he's the perfect one. He is, he is the only icon of, of understanding God. If you want to understand God, you have to look uh, at him. So just understand this. When you look at Jesus, 
when Jesus is born in Bethlehem and he grows up and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and he heals the sick and he casts out demons and he raises the dead and he rides in on the ridiculous peace donkey and he comes and he takes all the blame and he's the scapegoat for humanity when he's crucified and he died and he forgives and he's raised from the dead. Just understand, I just want you to understand this. It's a big point that you need to understand in your Christian life. In all of that, Jesus is not changing God. He's not. He's not. Jesus is not coming in, Father, wrathful. Jesus is coming in to change God. That's not what's happening. What's actually happening is this. He's showing us who God is. Because before we haven't understood that. Like we didn't know who he was. And so when Jesus is coming dying on the cross with his arms raised saying, Father, forgive them. He's not changing God's mind about humanity. He's showing us who God really is. Before him, we didn't have any way of understanding who God was, but now because of Jesus, we finally can. Jesus does not save us from God. Jesus reveals God as Savior. And I, I just, if you think, well, that's kind of obvious, it's not. Because this is, this is very other from what a lot of churches are teaching today. Because a lot of them are thinking that because of the, mer- like, you know, God wrathful, Jesus is coming in and taking on the wrath. Like, that's not what's happening. What's happening here is Jesus is finally revealing to us how good and loving and kind and compassionate God has always been. Because again, the only perfect icon that we have of who God is, is found in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> And so, so um, you can think. It, you might be thinking. I wonder if, even in your head, you're like, "Well, what about all that other stuff? What about all that other weird stuff?" So, just know this: that if it ever looks like God changes, just know this: that it only looks like God changes. It's only looking like He's changing because God doesn't change. Of course, He does new things, but he, His character doesn't change. But uh, what changes is our perception. Our perception most certainly does change. So if you were to go tonight, I would encourage you to do so. Maybe tonight you'd go home and you'd watch the sunset. You'd watch the sun come from the sky and fall down and set in the western horizon. And then just remember that that's all an illusion. That that's not what's happening at all. Because it's not the sun that's moving, it's we who are moving. But, but uh, you know, you, it looks like, if you were to look at it, it looks like the sun is rising in the east and traveling over our beautiful sky until it finally sets in the west. But then just remember that that's all an illusion because none of that's happening at all because the thing that's moving is not God. The thing that's moving is us. And so as we move in how we perceive God from how God spoke imperfectly and incompletely through the prophets as we move from that to where God speaks perfectly to us in the life of Jesus, just know it might look like God is changing, but the thing that's changing is our understanding of him. And it might look like he was here and now he's here, but really it's all an illusion because the thing that's moving through the sky is not him uh, but us and our growing understanding. We weren't able to understand God until we meet Jesus. But now we meet you. The people who, I just think it's significant to know the people who uh, studied God the most before Jesus were the most wrong about who he really was. That should answer everything you need to know about just studying, you know what I mean, the pre-Jesus way of understanding God. The people who were the masters of that understood who God were the least. They were the absolutely most wrong 
because Jesus comes in and he's surprising. And he looks differently. And so, so, uh, so just understand this. I'm, I'm all building up to something. If Jesus is what God has to say, and I hope you would agree with that. I hope I've beat that to death. If Jesus is what God has to say, the clearest picture we have of God is Jesus. Well, that's great because then we can answer some questions about God that we wouldn't have been able to answer without Jesus. Or maybe we would have tried to answer the questions as many people have without Jesus, and they would have um, got the wrong answer. So now, because we believe that God is just like Jesus, now we can answer some questions about him that without him, we, couldn't have, we wouldn't have been able to answer. Okay, so here we go. That's what we're going to do for the rest of our uh, series together, um, The God Who Bleeds. Here we go. And I think you might be thinking, oh, David, let's talk about something else. I just feel like this is super important for you guys, because if you can, if you can like, skip over all the, well, maybe God is like this nonsense that you're going to continually be confronted with in the world, I think you can save yourself from a lot of suffering and a lot of confusion. When, when the crap hits the fan for you, if you can know this about God, it's going to save you. And right now, you, may, you might be like, it doesn't matter right now. It's going to matter. Because there's going to be a time when there's going to be things that are happening and you don't understand them and they're going to be hard and they're going to be frustrating. At that point, if you can remember that God is exactly like Jesus, it'll save you. So it's why it's such an important thing. It's why I like always harp. If there was one statement, you know, from me as a preacher, it's obviously that, that, you know, God is revealed ultimately in the life of Jesus Christ. But it's an important one. So here's some questions that we're going to do, we're going to answer for the remainder of our series together. Because we know who God is because of Jesus. Here we go. Uh, Does God send the storm? No, he calms the storm. We wouldn't have known that had we not known Jesus. You can read the Bible in a certain way to where you can become convinced that natural disasters are the work of God. You can read the Bible in a certain way that would point, I can show you how to do it. Like, it's not that hard. I can, I can show you how to do that, but it seems like everybody does. Every time there's some natural disaster, somebody is doing this. They're convinced that it's the work of God. You think of like every time a hurricane hits New Orleans or an earthquake hits Haiti and Nepal or a tsunami maybe hits Thailand, there's always some preacher saying like, well, it's because all those wicked people, because all those wicked people over there, maybe that's why it happened. It's all those Buddhists in Thailand. So God decided he was going to wipe all them out, you know, maybe let's say 200,000 of them or so. But that is, let's say like this, at best, imperfect theology. At best, that is imperfect theology. You may be thinking, why? Why? Well, because we find God in a storm in the life of Jesus. We find him there. We find him there in the gospel. Remember, he's on a boat with the disciples. Jesus, who is the exact imprint in every way, of God, well, he's there on the boat, he's sleeping, and the, the uh, disciples come and they wake him, and they're like, man, don't you care that we're even perishing? And you know what he says? He says, like, of course I, of course I don't care. It's because you're wicked and horrible, right? That's why, that's why you're perishing. You know what I mean? Like, it's, my dad's just so mad that you guys are, like, sinners and stuff. Is that what he says? No, of course not. Of course not. That's what I mean. He doesn't say like, hey, Father, I just want to thank you for this storm that's going to teach these people how wicked and horrible they are. Like, that's not what you see. That's not what you see at all in the life of Jesus. You know what he says? He simply says this, peace, be still. So does God send the storm? No, he 
calms the storm. You wouldn't have known that had it not been for Jesus. But now because of Jesus, we can answer that question with confidence. Here we go. Does God shun sinners? No, he welcomes them. We wouldn't have known that without Jesus. But now because of Jesus, we know that some, some people came up with this kind of strange idea. I can, I'll show you where it is. But some people have come up with this idea that God is too holy to look upon sin. You ever heard that? It's too holy to look upon sin. They get it from a half a verse in Habakkuk. Do you guys say Habakkuk or Habakkuk? you say Habakkuk? Habakkuk? There's not even agreement in this room. I know. Life is hard. <laughs> I've always said Habakkuk, but now I'm, I'm switching to Habakkuk. Okay, I don't even know what I'm saying. Here we go. <laughs> Luckily, it doesn't come up much, so it's fine. <laughs> Okay, Habakkuk 1.13, this is where they get the idea. Your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Well, just read the rest of the verse and see maybe what he's talking about. Maybe it's not what you thought. Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? So what he's saying, just look at that verse. What he's saying is this. God, you are too pure to see suffering and do nothing about it. This is a man who's egging on God and saying, God, you can't tolerate wicked things, so we know that you're going to come and save us. I just hope you can appreciate that that's a lot different than saying, well, that guy, you know, like, looked at porn on his computer, and so now God can't look at you. Like, it's a very different way of understanding this, uh, this verse. He's not saying that he's not able to look upon sinners. In fact, that makes God completely incompatible uh, with the life of Jesus. And I, I just think instead we get the idea that God likes to shun sinners because we like to shun sinners. You know what I mean? It makes us feel morally superior. If those are the people, uh, if those are the people who are wrong, but God doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus' entire ministry was this, where he sees sinners and he looks at them right in the eye. And so even right there, you can see Jesus looks at sinners constantly. And, and you know what, then you know what he does? He welcomes them to his table, which is a lot different. It's a very different way of thinking than I can't even look at you right now. In fact, you know what, you know what he says? He says, hey, come right here. I'm going to call you my friends and sit right here. So does God shun the sinners? No, he welcomes them. The Pharisees, in fact, the Pharisees got so intense that they criticized Jesus, and this was their amazing diss. And Jesus, you're a friend of sinners. Like that was their best, that was their best, you know, deal. and so not, not only, not only did uh, he invite them to his table, he also invites himself to their house. You know what I mean? Like, it, like if you think about Zacchaeus, who was the worst sinner in Jericho, uh, he, he says this, hey, you can't get down out of that tree because I'm going to go to your house so we can hang out. And it's, it's, it says it like almost exactly like that. It's really funny if you read it in a modern translation. It's so casual. I can't help but feel like he's almost saying like, man, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bug the Pharisees so much. They're so crazy. They're so real. They think, they think I can't even look at you. Is that the weirdest? They think I can't even look at you. You're the worst of sinners. But, but come down here because I want to hang out with you. I want to call you my friend. And you can, you can use the Bible to shun sinners. You can. It's pretty easy. You can do it with style. You can. The Pharisees were pros at this. They were incredibly gifted at shunning sinners. Uh, but Jesus didn't do that. Think about the woman caught in adultery. 
the ultimate sinner, if there was a Pharisee there, what do you think they would have said? Well, they would have said something that was very different than Jesus. And he says this, he says this to her, hey, does anyone accuse you? And she says, no, my Lord. And he says, well, neither do I accuse you. Now go and sin no more. So does God shun sinners? No, he welcomes them. Here we go, continuing on. Does God bring famine? No, he feeds the hungry. Does God bring famine? No, he feeds the hungry. You can use the Bible to prove whatever you want. You can use the Bible to prove that God is the one who brings famine. But that is, at best, imperfect theology. Because, uh, you know, you see Jesus, who is the exact representation of God's nature. And I just think this. I just think nobody's ever hungry around Jesus. You know what I mean? When Jesus is around, everybody has plenty to eat. And you might be thinking, that's a small, trivial thing. Well, that's because you are a privileged American. (laughs) There's beauty in understanding this. Wherever there was Jesus, there was food for people to eat. And I think there's something beautiful about that, especially in the world today. And and you might be thinking, like, well, it doesn't even matter if there wasn't enough resources. Maybe all they had, let's say, was five loaves of bread and two fish. Well, it doesn't matter. For Jesus, he just blesses it, and uh, he feeds everyone. So does God bring famine? No, he feeds the hungry. Continuing on, does God reject human pleasure? No, he turns water to wine. It's always, it has always been and will always be the assumption of a super spiritual that God rejects and somehow uh, resents human pleasure. The, the idea is this. I wonder if you've ever felt this. Man, if we are going to have too much fun, God's definitely going to be mad. You know what I mean? Because he's okay with like a two or a three in the fun scale. But if we're like in the sevens, don't want to be up there. But it's just amazing when you look at the life of Jesus, who is the perfect picture of who God is. His first miracle was in no way necessary, except that he wanted to keep the party going. He, he, he was, he, he was, um, there, there was nothing, I mean, like, you don't need more wine at a party where you've already had plenty of wine. Do you understand that? But I think it's a beautiful sentiment that he's, that he's affirming the celebration of humanity. And in the book of John, we talk about this, that he contrasts these two events. Jesus uh, makes wine to keep a party going, and then he makes a whip to stop a church service. Everything. I thought that sounds like kind of like backwards, man. Like I thought it should probably be the other way around. Yeah, I agree. That's why we need Jesus, because he was surprising, and he consistently acted different than uh, the way that we were um, expecting. I just again I find it interesting, interesting and surprising that the people who studied the Old Testament most were the most wrong about who God really is. Does God take our side in our hostilities? No, he humanizes the other side. We wouldn't have known this had it not been uh, for Jesus. I, I think it's probably, it's got to be the oldest idea that you could possibly have about God is this. God is our God, and he's on our side and not yours. You know what I mean? <laughs> is there, I, that's probably the oldest statement that you could possibly make about God, always assuming that he's always for us, and that means that he's taking our side in all of our hostilities. It's great to say that God's on our side. It's wrong to always assume that he's against the people that you're against. I've said this before, but uh, it's safe to assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that he hates all the same people you do. But he... 
he doesn't take our hostilities. He humanizes uh, the other side. And, and I would say this, that thinking this idea, God is our God and only our God, and he's on our side and not yours, not only is that imperfect theology, it's also dangerous theology. Because, because you don't have to ask questions when God's on your side. When God's on your side, you don't have to, you know, count the dead, if you will. You can always just assume, I, I hate to always bring up Hitler, but it's a great example of people who have assumed that God was on their side, and so they never had to count the bodies. Uh, does God take our side in our hostilities? Hitler got this wrong. No, he humanizes the other side. And so I, I just think it's amazing that Jesus forces his fellow Jews to think in new ways. I talked about this uh, earlier today. In their, think new ways about their classic enemies, the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. They were pros at hating uh, the Samaritans. But Jesus is always, ca- annoyingly, he's always casting the Samaritans as the heroes in his parables. I mean, I hope you can appreciate how frustrating that would be. Because you're trying to hate a certain group of people, and then Jesus the Messiah comes, and he's always painting them as the hero of these stories and not you. I hope, that, I hope you can appreciate how frustrating uh, that would be. But he's, he's always, like, speaking positively about them. Jesus humanizes the Samaritans so much that the Pharisees say in John chapter 8, this is their new disc. Well, Jesus, you're, you're a Samaritan. And you, and you must have a demon. It's a, like they diss him because he's always humanizing the other side. That they say, you know, it's like, hey, let's pretend I'm, you know, humanizing, I don't know, Muslims, let's say. Just totally out of the, and, you know, it's like they're so mad. The religious people are mad. They're like, well, maybe you're Muslim. You know what I mean? But, like that's what they were doing with Jesus because he was so obsessed with humanizing the people who God's people had decided were the enemy. Uh, but he never does. He never does that. Does God take our side in our hostilities? No, he humanizes the other side. Does God kill his enemies? No, he forgives them. We wouldn't have known this had it not been for God. We've been very wrong about this in the past. But you can prove again. You can prove anything you want in the Bible. Just understand that you can. I can show you how to prove that God kills all who oppose him. I can show you. I can show you how to do it with style. I can give you great verses. Uh, but that is imperfect theology at best. In fact, I would say it like this. I think that we, because the Bible is so broad, the Bible is so big, and it's so, it's so amazing and expansive in its progression, I think that we as followers of Jesus and students of the Bible, I think we have to center our reading of the Scripture somewhere. I think something has to have more um, emphasis than other things. I think it just has to. Don't eat shrimp is not the same as God is love. You know what I mean? Those just aren't on the same playing field. They're both, they're both the word, but I don't think they're both exactly the same. So if you, were to, if you were forced, I know we enjoy the entire Bible. It's one of the great blessings. But if you had to say, do you think, if you had to say, do you think that we should center our reading of Scripture on the Old Testament or on the New Testament? You think new? So do I. I think we should. I think that's the truest picture of who God is. And I also think that we have to, we have to at some point esteem the words of Jesus higher than other people's words. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of people's words in the Bible, and I just think that we as followers of Christ, Christian, the little Christs, we have to be people who emphasize Jesus' words, that his words are ultimately more important than other people's words. We have to, and so if you, and then if you had to, if you were forced to, if you were forced to say, what do you think is the most significant moment 
in the Bible. What do you think it'd be? I mean, I was reading uh, not long ago, and I read this. Now as you go out, wear sandals and don't wear two tunics. So then that's the word. I'm just not sure that's the most important word. Because I never wear sandals, and I don't have any tunics. Like, I don't even know what that is. So it's the word. So I just think, I 